So this is our seventh week now in our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, If you want to follow along in your own Bible, I encourage you to open up to where we left off last week, which is chapter 4, verse 1. And uh, what's happening today, this is a special day because we are crossing over into the second half of the letter. The first three chapters, Paul has been talking about who we are and what we have in Christ. And now this shift is going to happen where in the second half he's going to be talking about what that means for how we live our lives. So the first half of Ephesians is all about being, and the second half is about doing. And that order is important. It's it's important that we recognize that that's the way it's supposed to go, right? Because what we are supposed to do is supposed to flow out of who we recognize ourselves to be, and what we believe. And when we get the order reversed, it leads to all kinds of problems, right? So let's do a quick recap of what Paul has said about who we are in Christ. So just in case you haven't been around the last month or so, or uh, you've forgotten, it's a fantastic list that he's given us. Who we are in Christ. First, we are loved by God with a love that is bigger than we can comprehend. Paul says it is higher and wider and deeper and longer than what we can imagine. We actually need supernatural power in order to grasp it. We are also part of a new humanity that is not defined primarily by ancestry, nationality, or even religious laws. These are the things that typically define human beings. And it's not that they play no role at all in our identity, but in Christ we have an identity that is rooted primarily in something else, in the mercy and love of God. Who we are in Christ, we are part of a unity of diversity that is proving the powers of evil wrong. And then lastly, we are part of a plan to help bring all things in heaven and on earth to unity under Christ. And another way of putting that would be we are part of God's plan to help to bring peace in the world. So the question is, do you see yourself this way? Because throughout Ephesians so far, the first three chapters, Paul has been encouraging us, trust in Jesus and then choose... To see yourself like this in Christ and everything that comes with that. So now, second half of the letter, Paul's going to get a bit more specific about how our identity should play itself out in the way that we live in the world. So, let's read chapter 4, starting in verse 1. As a prisoner for the Lord, then... I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. I want to pause here. Just in case there's any confusion, Paul is not referring to us as God's prisoners. Okay? Uh, There is a sense in which we we are servants of God, of course, but it's better to think it's not that God imprisons us, God sets us free. Sin imprisons us. The devil imprisons us. Uh, The forces of the world imprison us. But God sets us free. What Paul is reminding us of here is that he was writing this in prison. Uh, He had been put there by the Roman Empire because of his missionary efforts. So what he's doing here is he's, he's basically saying, Hey, as a guy who loves the church enough to suffer for it, and I am suffering for it, here is what I want you to know 
okay? Live a life worthy of the calling that you have received, this calling that he's been talking about for the first three chapters. And now he's going to talk about what it looks like to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So, continuing in verse 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in in all. So, my paraphrase. Please, get along with each other. (laughs) Maintain unity. Remember, several weeks ago, we talked about how part of the purpose of the church is to demonstrate to the unseen spiritual forces of evil that God's wisdom is better than their so-called wisdom. And God's wisdom is to bring people from all nations into one family, both Jews and Gentiles. So the way that we prove the unseen forces of evil wrong, one of the main ways that we prove them wrong, is by being what I like to call a unity of diversity. A unity of diversity. The spiritual forces of evil say there is absolutely no way that a bunch of people with different cultures, from different nationalities, who speak different languages and uh, have different political leanings, and you know, some like the, the Red Sox and some like the Yankees, there's no way that they're going to be able to come together and not hate each other. And the church is supposed to be this this sign to the unseen spiritual powers that actually, nope, you're wrong. You're wrong. But of course, proving the spiritual forces of evil wrong is not easy because they're always working against us. They're always trying to stir up division and hostility and and fear. They're always uh, trying to get us to be self-righteous and prideful and to turn against one another. And it actually takes effort Real effort to maintain unity, right? That's why Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. In in a church, in in a community of people, unity is not something that can just be passively received. It's something that actually needs to be worked for. It takes effort. And Paul says, here is how you actively seek it. He gives three commands. Be humble. Be gentle, be patient. Another way he puts it is bear with one another. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. You know, and a simple way of putting this is love one another. One of my favorite passages to go back to is 1 Corinthians 13, which is Paul's famous description of love. And you may notice that the way he describes love in that chapter sounds a lot like these commands here, right? He says... uh, Uh, Love is patient, love is kind, it is not proud, it does not boast, it always perseveres. Be humble, be gentle, be patient. You know, Paul could have said, well, this is how you live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Get out on the street corner and preach. This is how you live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Memorize every chapter and verse in the Bible. But instead, he chooses to give primacy to these things. Now, 
don't get me wrong, okay, Paul cares very much about evangelizing and spreading the gospel. Paul cares very much about the scriptures and interpreting them well. I mean, Paul was one of, if not the greatest evangelists and Bible expositors that the world has ever known. But when he told us, hey, here is how you live out a life worthy of the calling you have received, he chose to give primacy to these kinds of things. Humility, gentleness, patience. So let's talk about these. Be humble. What is humility exactly? I think some people have this idea that humility is thinking badly of yourself. You know, assuming, well, there's nothing that I'm really that great at, nothing that I'm more qualified to do than anybody else. But that can't be right. I mean, if I'm supposed to have surgery, I don't want the surgeon getting some radical idea of humility and saying to the receptionist, oh, you know, you could probably do this just as well as I could. Why don't you have at it? No, so that doesn't make sense, right? That can't be what real humility is. So some people say, well, real humility is thinking of yourself accurately. And I definitely think that that is part of humility, but it's not everything, right? Because you could have somebody who thinks of themselves accurately, right? They could be a, a great athlete and know that they're a great athlete, but they might not be humble. They might brag about it all the time, right? So that's not quite right either. What humility really is, is not being preoccupied with yourself. It doesn't mean you don't recognize what your gifts and strengths are. It just means you don't feel a need to always be boasting about it and focusing on it, right? C.S. Lewis said, humility isn't thinking less of ourselves, it's thinking of ourselves less. And I think he put it very well there. Now, I think for some people, humility will mean thinking less of yourself. But generally speaking, that, that's a good perspective. It's just real humility means you're not so fixated on your own concerns, your own needs, your own preferences. If somebody who is not humble comes into a church or any environment, they're thinking mainly about their will, right? Does this place conform to my will? If it does not, can I assert my will upon it? Can I come into this place and be the center of attention? Right? But when we're humble, we're able to come into a community and not only think about our own needs, but think about other people's needs and concerns and perspectives. Right? And any church, any community that's going to be healthy has to have humble people. What about gentleness? Be gentle. I think one way of describing gentleness would be it is the ability to be in conflict with someone but still show care for them. We're going to be in conflict sometimes with each other, but when the conflicts are, arise, are you able to handle them in a way that makes the other people, person not feel demonized or, or disrespected? Are you able to handle it in a way that makes it clear that you're actually for this person, you're not, you're not against them? That's gentleness. 
And then for patience, I would describe patience as the ability to not jump ship the moment other people's imperfections are revealed. We're all supposed to be humble and gentle, but we will not be all the time. And when that happens, we need to show one another patience, rather than just jumping ship, right? Humility, gentleness, patience. If the people in a church are growing in these qualities, the powers of darkness are proven wrong. But if not, if we're preoccupied with ourselves, if we can't uh, disagree with someone without, um, without hating them, uh, if we, we jump ship the moment that imperfections are revealed, well, then the powers of darkness laugh. And I like to imagine that they say, oh, maybe we were right after all. Now notice, Paul says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit. And what Paul is clarifying there is what we're actually unified around. It's important to recognize that there is something that we are supposed to be connected by. It's not, it's not nationality, it's not ancestry, but there is something that binds us. It's not anything goes in the church, right? And what it is, is this shared experience of the spirit of God. And a shared recognition that we know God through Jesus Christ, right? So anywhere we go where there are fellow people who recognize Jesus as Lord, who have had this experience with the Spirit of God, who have, who have expressed that through baptism, we should be doing all that we can within our power to maintain unity with them. Right? All of the ones that Paul lists here are the things that are supposed to bind us. Right? One, one spirit, one body, meaning the church, um, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. This is what is supposed to be the center that we all are united around. All right, let's keep reading in verse 7. Paul's going to shift to a new topic now. It's related, but it's a, it's a new topic. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So what Paul is saying here is something like, to each one of us, Christ has allotted certain gifts. So, so far he's been talking about unity, and now he's talking about one of the reasons why unity is so important. And, and it's because each one of us has been given certain strengths, certain abilities from God for the benefit of the whole. So if we're not unified, then we're going to miss out on the benefit that we have from being together, right? God has set things up such that we need each other. So again, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean, except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. Okay, if you're confused by that section right there, don't worry about it. I was very confused as well. It took a while to kind of uh, figure that out. So I'll do my best to break it down. 
What Paul does here is he quotes a psalm from the Old Testament, something that he loves to do, quote psalms. Specifically, it's Psalm 68. And that psalm is a psalm about God defeating his enemies, ascending to power, and then giving gifts to the Israelites, to his people. And what Paul is saying is that we should see in that psalm a pattern that Christ then fulfilled. Now, it's important to recognize the way that Christ fulfilled it is not the way that the people probably expected him to fulfill it, right? Rather than conquering physical enemies, he conquered spiritual enemies. Rather than conquering through warfare, he conquered through dying on a cross. Rather than ascending a earthly throne, he ascended a heavenly throne. And rather than giving gifts of the spoils of war to the Israelites, he is giving spiritual gifts to the church, right? So he's fulfilled this not in the way that the people were expecting, but in a different way and really a better way. And then Paul has this little aside, which is kind of strange, where he says that, we should recognize that Christ needed to descend before he could ascend. Now, people have different ideas about what exactly Paul has in mind when he talks about this descending. Is he specifically thinking about when Christ took on flesh and became a human being, right? Going from heaven to earth, that's a descension. Or is he, is he talking about an even further descension, which is Christ dying and going down to the realm of the dead? I would say, either way, the point is the same. Either way, the point Paul is making is, hey, let's not forget that before Christ ascended to this throne of power, he humbled himself. He descended. Right? Which ties us back to Paul's earlier point, which is that we're supposed to be humble. Right? If Christ is our Lord and we're supposed to be emulating him, then we should be the kind of people that believe that in order to truly be exalted, we need to humble ourselves. We need to descend before we ascend. So, but anyway, the reason Paul brings this up is because he wants us to realize that Christ is now fulfilling the last part of the pattern of Psalm 68, which is he is giving gifts to his people, spiritual gifts to each one of us. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So let's go back to the first part of that passage. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service. 
Now here's how you might have understood Paul's train of thought. God has given gifts to strengthen and empower the church. The gifts that he gives are apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's what a lot of people probably hear when they read that. Now that's partially right, but I don't think that's quite what Paul is saying. Here's what I think Paul is saying. Christ apportions gifts to all of us. Remember that? We already identify that. Like, it's not just for the apostles, the evangelists, the prophets, and teachers. Not just for the church leaders. Christ gives gifts to all. So he has appointed church leaders to help his people to use their gifts. You see the difference there? It's a subtle difference, but it's important. Do you guys know who the ministers at St. Paul's Church are? So this is a trick question, right? <laughs> if I had a big mirror, I'd hold it up. We all are supposed to be ministers here at this church. Now, Keith and I are pastors, so according to Paul, we have a special role, right? Our special role is to equip you to minister. It is to equip you for works of service. Remember, Christ, gave, Christ himself gave pastors to equip his people for the works of service. And actually, that word service is the same word that gets translated as ministry. So you all are supposed to be ministers. And what that means is you are all called with your lives to serve God and to serve others and to be part of this mission to reveal the love of Christ to the world. And you have been given specific abilities, talents, circumstances that make it possible for you to do that in a unique way. And what people like Keith and I are supposed to be doing is helping you to do that well. And, you know, guys, I just have to confess that studying this passage this week was a wake-up call for me. Because I had to be honest with myself. I had to ask, am I fulfilling this role? And, you know, I, I hope and pray that when I stand up here and I preach and when I meet with you guys and pray for you, that I am helping to equip you for ministry. But if I'm honest, I think this is something that I could grow a lot in. And it's a good perspective shift to think not just that I want to minister to you, but that I want to help you to step into your calling as a minister. And what Paul says here is that it's not until we all recognize our own roles as ministers, that the church actually grows into maturity. Until we each own that, we're always going to be, as Paul puts it, like infants that get tossed around by the waves. And whenever somebody has something to teach that sounds interesting, that but might not be true, we'll be more likely to fall for it. The thing that guards against false teaching is actually getting involved serving in some way, being a minister. So, here, uh, here's something I want you to think about. And 
let me just be clear, okay? Ministry is not just evangelizing. It's not just um, teaching the Bible. It can be. It should be. That's part of it, right? But ministry is also things like visiting people who need a friend, um, taking care of people who are sick. It's um, volunteering to help set up or take down after service. It's using music and the arts to glorify God and to lead people in, in worship and to help communicate biblical truths. It could be babysitting. It could be writing notes of encouragement for people. You know, if you have skills in technology, it, it could mean utilizing technology, use, utilizing graphic design, all kinds of stuff like that, right? Any role that involves serving God and serving others is an opportunity for ministry. So, here's what I want you to think about today and hopefully throughout this week. A couple questions for reflection. So, one, finish this sentence. I am equipped to serve God and others by fill in the blank. I am equipped to serve God and others by... And you don't have to have something that's like super unique, okay? It doesn't have to be something that, that only you can do, right? But just try to fill in that blank somehow. And then also, a way that I enjoy serving God and others is by blank. Now, of course, if we're humble, our desires shouldn't be the center of everything. But, hey, if you can do acts of service in a way that you actually enjoy, well, that's probably a good way to do it. So that's the first thing to do. Finish those sentences and then ask yourself, am I doing this? <laughs> and if not, how can I? And, you know, if you want to meet with Keith and I to talk about how you might be able to uh, do those things in this context, or even outside of this church in some way, we'd be happy to meet with you and process that and pray about that. And also, one other uh, resource I'd like to encourage you to use is uh, something called Strength Finders. Have you guys heard of this, the Strength Finders test? Um, so, there's, this is not like a specifically biblically based thing or anything like that, but I do think it's, it's helpful. Uh, it's a test that has 34 different strengths, and you take the test, and then it tells you what it thinks your five top strengths are, and what that means. And uh, it costs $20 to take it. If money is an issue, uh, we would be happy to pay for you to take the test. It's just, if we pay for it, you have to agree to meet with us to talk through your results. And we're not going to like force you to do anything you don't want to do, but... Um, that's just the agreement, okay? So, if you want to do this, uh, let us know, and uh, we would be happy to, to help make that happen. So, let's learn what gifts Christ has apportioned to us for works of service. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you're inviting each one of us into being part of helping to bring all things on heaven and on earth to unity under you. Uh, we thank you that you have invited us to be part of this drama of proving the powers of evil wrong 
And we thank you that uh, you have ultimately won the victory uh, through your son on the cross. And Lord, I, I just pray that you would uh, give us wisdom, that you would speak to us through your spirit as we reflect on these questions this week. And I pray that you would build uh, your body, the church, into maturity um, to reflect you to the world and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.